Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome, 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 everyone. We're super honored and excited to have you listening into this episode of the Gen Activist Podcast. We want to invite you into this intergenerational conversation. We have some amazing guests for you today. We have two Chinese American women that have done amazing work in their communities. They're going to be talking to us about electoral politics, why voting matters, and civic engagement as well as some of the historic and contemporary violence that Asians and Asian Americans have endured in this country. You know, we recorded this episode about a week before the tragic events that occurred in Atlanta that took the lives of six Asian people. And we knew then that this conversation was super important and it's even more relevant now. I hope that you will listen to their stories intently listen to the fear that they describe Asian people living with in this country, and that you will get something out of this conversation, be enriched by this conversation, but then be spurred to action. We are super excited to have two powerhouses in the virtual room with us today, two women that we have admired um, far and up close. And in fact, we were just laughing about the fact that the last time we saw any either of them was when we were all four together for International Women's Day last year, right before literally the world shut down. So we were super excited um, to just catch up, hear about the incredible work that they've been doing, um, and to learn a little bit more about how we can all be a little bit more active in our work to support the racial justice um, and civic work um, in our community. So I'm first going to introduce Alice Yi, um, who's been mobilizing Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in Austin for more than 25 years. In 2014, she founded the Austin chapter of the Asian Pacific Islander American Public Affairs Association, also known as APAPA, and became APAPA's Texas Regional Chair. She's now a consultant for the Asian and Pacific Islander American Vote Organization, and working on the census and GoTV uh, throughout 2020. Beyond her tireless work in the AAPI community, she is the Asian American community liaison to Congressman Lloyd Doggett. She's a longstanding member of the Boy Scout Central Texas Capital Areas Council Exploring Committee. Um, in 2020, the New York Times traveled to Austin to interview Alice for a story on the census in America. And an incredible voice that I have um, had the pleasure of knowing since high school, actually. She and my older brother went to school together. And so it's been wonderful to just see the ways in which she's come back to Austin and just been such an incredibly important voice, not just for our generation, but our community at large. And so Ashley Chang grew up on the floor of her parents' Chinese restaurants. Currently, she 
He's the co-founder of Browser, a creative civic engagement company named the 2019 Organization of the Year by the Travis County Democratic Party. In addition to working as a communication strategist and marketer for the movement, she co-hosts the Rabble podcast, serving up a regular helping of progressive Texas politics with a sprinkle of funfetti and a side of this is how you get stuff done. She currently serves as the AP, AAPI representative for Texas on the Democratic National Committee and as a beloved dog mom to Eleanor Roosevelt. Love that name. Actually, we, Eleanor Roosevelt was for me. Just wanted to correct you on that, Virginia. <laughs> very important, very important distinction. Um, we're just so excited to have both of you join us. Um, again, the sort of vision for this podcast is to create sort of a living room conversation with intergenerational voices. And so um, I think one of the greatest sort of opportunities I've had is to work with both Ashley and Alice in different capacities and see the ways in which they inspired the generations before them and the generations after them. Um, and so we just want to kind of get a little bit of insight into each of your personal journeys into the political sphere um, and social activism. I know we are all inspired and provoked to this work, sometimes through our lived experience, other times it's inherited, other times um, it's just kind of the, the moment that we're born into. And so, um, Alice, what if we start with you? If you'll just share a little bit about your own journey into becoming such an important voice around specifically engaging the Asian American community into the world of politics and civic engagement. First up, thank you all for having us, uh, having me. And uh, this conversation has to be connected with our history. I'm going to say a little bit about the history. Since uh, in 1882, the United States Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prohibited our immig the immigration from China, uh, Chinese citizens from for the next 10 years. That law was extended in 1892 until all the way actually to um, Kennedy administration, the Immigration Naturalization Act really fulfilled and uh, changed the rules. The Chinese Exclusion Act was the only U.S. law ever to prevent immigration and neutralization on the basis of the race from the country origin. They were also prevented, all Chinese people also prevented from marrying a Caucasian or owning a land. Chinese suffered racial discrimination ever since in every level of the society. In 1900, there is a PhD thesis from Stanford University predicted that there will be no more Chinese left in U.S. after 50 years because that restriction. Asian Americans have been part of American history, like everybody knows. We built a railroad, transcontinental railroad, and we fought World War II. And uh, from then 1800s to recently immigrants who continues to join our nation in search for higher education or American dream, but we did not have enough representations. We always treated as foreigners. So my first vote start 1991, 
when I first become U.S. citizen. And my mentor was Bob Bullock. He was uh, running for uh, lieutenant governors. So in the whole uh, our community, I don't see any Asians involved. And also, he was a mentor to us and need to be organized, need to, to join those kind of conversation or join the, to speak up by voting. So that's when, when that time I started voting and I knew the voting is important, it's our representation. And until later years, recent years, you, I see a lot of uh, Asian American running for office. Their name is on the ballot. That even generalized more people interested to go to voting booths. So, which is a great, great way to to energize our community. So, this is the this is the way we need to think about the back. Think about now. We need a representation. Then we need to get involved. So that's why we need to educate and lead our community to change the modern minority mass. And that we cannot be quiet, be silent anymore. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, I, I'm always floored by how you just remember dates. <laughs> you, <laughs> you just, like, <laughs> and just the, the depth of the history um, that just lives in your bones um, and yes. comes out. It's always, always mm-hmm. so inspiring to me. Ashley, let's let's hear a little bit about about your journey. Well, I I like to think that my civic engagement journey, especially when it comes to API civic engagement, especially when it comes to work in Austin and work outside of Austin throughout Texas. I think it started when I met Alice. So I feel like just hearing her story is enough and I'm done. <laughs> but I seriously, I joke about that a little bit, but it's it's true. It's, you know, I was civically engaged before I met Alice, but as someone who grew up as second generation, I guess, depending how, on how you talk about it, I was the, the, uh, the first generation born in America, born in Texas. And so I didn't have... You know, like I grew up with a lot in a, in a primarily, a dominantly um, white community. And I had, I just didn't grow up totally accepting my identity as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so when I went into Asian spaces as an adult, still, I kind of never felt quite Asian enough. And I think a lot of immigrants listening to this might have a, or children of immigrants might have a similar experience of not feeling mm-hmm. quite American enough in quote unquote American spaces and not, or white spaces really, or not, and not feeling quite Asian or whatever enough, whatever your ethnicity enough in those spaces. And Alice is someone who I met uh, and I raised my hand and said, I want to help. What can I do? And she (laughs) picked me up and introduced me to the people, taught me how to do the things. And honestly, I had been in other Asian spaces where I raised my hand and and said, I'm here. What do I do? I'm ready. I want to get people engaged. I want to help. And they and they didn't do the same thing for me. So I love that you guys are doing this podcast and centering across generations because you really you need that you need people who are doing the work to look around and see who's missing across different communities whether it be generationally and help you know pull them pull them in kind of whether or not you want to Alice is a master at bringing people together (laughs) and you know and you're right like Megan you're so right whenever I'm with Alice and I hear her public speak especially I'm like oh my goodness why why don't why didn't I learn this Asian American history growing up, why isn't this part of our curriculum in Texas? And Mm -hmm. when I learned that, that, you know, after the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act was, there were, 
you know, there were quotas. Before that, there was only 105 Chinese people who could become citizens every year. That is mind blowing to me. Right. That is such a small number. You know, that's like that's like the number of likes y'all probably get on like an individual Instagram <laughs> post. <laughs> you know what I learned? What I learned that oh, my parents came here in 1969 to Austin, and how to think about how much our history, my family's history as Asian Americans and as Texans, is tied to the history of the civil rights movement, that we got to come on the backs of black activists and their work. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I was never taught that growing up. And when someone reflected that to me, it just, it changed everything and how I saw the world, how I saw the importance of building coalitions all across different BIPOC communities, really. So I just, I love that I get to be in this space and get to learn from y'all. And I also wanted to say that my dad, my, my family moved here because I have a great uncle who was a was hired on as our first family sponsor. He was hired on as a professor at Houston Tillerson, and which is such a right. It's, yeah. Well, just some context for our our listeners: Houston Tillerson is uh, the HBCU historically black college in in Austin, but it's actually the first institution of higher learning in Central Texas. So it actually predates UT. But for many, you know, educators of color, HT was the only place that they could get hired. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's interesting to hear you say that, that that's kind of the birth of your family in Texas came yeah. through the, you know, the platform of an HBCU, uh, which is so incredible. And I was sharing with Megan earlier, it's similar to what y'all shared before. I just think, Alice, you're like a walking encyclopedia and I'm constantly <laughs> learning. Not that much. Or, or iterating on things that I've learned. And Ashley, similar to what you said, there's something so powerful about not just hearing the, the statistics and the historical timeline, but making those connections. You rec- you know, we often are caught up in this narrative of like, why haven't black people and Asian people gotten over this or, or pulled themselves by their bootstraps or hasn't there been enough time to pass? And you realize how connected we are. You talk about your family moving here in 1969. My parents came here in 1979 for my dad to go to law school. And my dad came to UT Law School only three years after they integrated the football team. And so it's like all these timelines start to really resonate with you about how much more work is to be done to disrupt these systems, right? That were never built for Chinese Americans to be a part of. And these communities that were intrinsically built to not just marginalize us, but silo silo us completely. And so I think there's such power in understanding our history because it informs where we are today, March 5th, 2021. You know, I so appreciate even anchoring this conversation in history. And one of my favorite writers or historians is John Henry Clark. And he said, history isn't everything, but it's a start. And it's the, it's the, uh, the clock that tells us the cultural time of day, and it is the compass. I love this part. It's the compass, history is, that helps us find our places on the map of human geography. And it's when I hear you telling your story like that, it's the start for you. It's where you anchor your, discover, both of you are talking about, in history, you kind of discover who you are in the now. And where you are on the map of human geography. And then John Henry Clark goes on to say, and not only that, 
history tells us what we must become. So I just, so I, I just want to keep hearing more about that. Uh, history is so important. Yeah, it's so good. I, I think about, you know, Ashley, when you talk about when you met Alice and y'all are literally like the physical manifestation of this podcast, right? Like the, the connection that we're, we're trying to make, you're like in person, the personification of it. But, you know, I think that it's so important to, to for what you spoke to, for what Alice did for you, right? Because we hear so much, you know, I'm a zennial. I will argue that to the death. I'm not a millennial. So I'm a zennial. <laughs> but we hear so much about, you know, the millennial generation and then you have Gen Z and the alpha generation or whatever they are after that. And, you know, about us maybe not being engaged in the same way or, or you know, not stepping up to the plate or you hear all these complaints. And a lot of times I struggle because I'm like, but we have a generation before us who you know, doesn't always, it doesn't always feel like we have the access to them, right? Like it doesn't always feel like outside of our parents or, you know, like our immediate family that we have someone who will like actually take us and bring us along. And so I think it's really, really important that Alice did what she did because it wasn't just, you know, yes, you should be involved in and admonishing um, people to be involved, but it was like, no, and then I'm going to show you the roadmap because, you know, in a lot of ways, we don't have to like reinvent the wheel if we have people who will take us along. And I think there's like a real yearning for that in our generation, a real yearning to just be shown like the roadmap. And so I think that that's, you know, just absolutely beautiful. I'm glad that you shared that story and hopefully are some other people to do the same. And it does cost something, right? Like it costs time. Um, you know, and, and really like to, you know, it's just costly. It's costly to, to bring people into the fold, but, but look at all of the ripple effects of that moment for you and what Alice did for you and how much you've impacted the community. So. And one of the things I think that resonates with me about just y'all's, your personal bond, but again, sort of the collective work that we have the opportunity to be a part of is the power of passing those stories on, right? Because you know, Ashley, what you talked about your own experience sort of growing up in Austin is not dissimilar from my own about we grew up in very white spaces, you know, whether that was our neighborhoods or the schools we attended and whether it was conscious to us or not, right? There are these unconscious sort of microaggressions that we experience every single day, but it's also sometimes a chipping away at sort of our, not our cultural identity, but sometimes the articulation of that. And I know for me, like my college experience and the experience of my, my broader family gave me the language to navigate those spaces. It gave me a footprint to follow in those spaces. And I think there's something really powerful about documenting those stories, even if they're oral stories, right? Just at, at this point, I've probably heard Alice share some of those stories a couple of times. And to know, to know those stories is to know the work ahead of us. And the, mm -hmm. to know those stories is also to know the continued pain points that we face, not just in Austin, but across the country. And so I wonder if Alice, you could share with us a little bit about how that history has anchored the work you do now. I know one of the ways we got to be really close is in supporting the work you were doing around the census, which is a manifestation of literally this conversation about representation, being visible and being counted. And could you share a little bit about why the 2020 census was so important and just the work of grassroots organizing. I mean, that is blood, sweat, and tears work. Yes, 
from the history without representation, and also from the history, we are always the scapegoat. This continues from、uh, the next subject I want to talk about. In every tragedy in the history, doesn't matter is business downturn or the、uh, pandemic, not like now, Chinese or Asian overall. It's always a scapegoat throughout the history. Now we talk about a little more about history again. From a Chinese massacre in 1800 in LA, in Oregon, in Utah, up to 1982, the murder of Vincent Chin. You all know that that story because auto industry get a great hate from Japanese car. So Vincent Chin is a scapegoat to be killed. Just killed using by baseball bat, and then think about from Congress passed Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 until now last year, Trump administration calling China virus. So this is always push us to the bottom. So just because the environment is not on our side. The history is not our side, so we need to generate our our people. We need educate our citizens, our、uh, community, API community. We need to be counted, so more people counted, no more people vote, and less discrimination we will receive. Our Asian American has the mentality. Especially Chinese American has a mentality. The government is not our business. We just keep our head down, doing our work, become a good citizen. That's good enough. But not in United States. Not here. If you don't looking for trouble and trouble looking for you, just like a pandemic and just like now, children supposed to go back to school. But our Chinese students, Chinese family, afraid to send the kids back to school because the kids was bullied. They think we carry the virus. I tell my own story. I went to our neighborhood HEB once a week. I was yelled at at the cash register and said, "You step back until I back off and you come to pay." This I asked. I said I was with the mask, and in between cashier and me has the. Fabric glass. I asked just because I am Asian. That means I carry virus. Is that what you try to say? You didn't tell other customer in front of me to step back, not to pay until you leave. See, all those small things add up together. You feel like you really need educate our community to be part of the conversation, to be to have seat on the table. We cannot be quiet anymore. This is why I worked so hard, and also I need to give a credit to Wallace Quarter Foundation API Community Fund funds. They giving a lot of funds out throughout the whole nation. Try to to emphasize our Asian is the fastest growing minority population, and we need to count. We need to be counted. We need to let the government know how many people we are, and we need to have our voice. So we need to vote. So this is a, a group who gave us a, a lot of matching fund last year. So I 
uh, can operate a, a whole team, wonderful team to working together. And if by myself, I could not do all this work, I have a wonderful, we call dream team together. They're doing social media, they're doing online, and we did a targeting, advertising. It's all because we have this funding. Of course, City of Austin and Travis County gave us a funding also. United Way and the Faith in Public Service also gave us funding. So all pile all those funding together. I feel so grateful. And the community or city or government recognize our API need to be counted. We recognize our work is important. So they are behind us. And there's a good news I want to add to it. Just because we were doing, we did a great job. So the Wallace Quarter Foundation funded me again for this year and next year, going to um, build a coalition um, to energize and also to um, keep the momentum going for the election of 2022. So that's yes. nice. Yeah, that's amazing, especially the, yeah, we definitely want to talk about what needs to happen, you know, going forward. I think, you know, when I hear your story of, you know, just being an HEB and I think about, you know, in your own community, you know, um, think about when Trump first called it, you know, the China virus. And I had this very um, visceral reaction. I remember like my body got hot, like I was furious because I think Black people can certainly relate to, you know, being othered in a way that makes life really hard and makes us have to suffer through what people think are slight indignities, right? But they actually have a very big impact. And to live with that kind of uh, fear, you know, of just like, can I go outside? Can I walk down the street? Can I go to my grocery store and, you know, not be um, attacked or accosted or be microaggressed. And so I, I guess, Ashley, I just want to hear also like your reaction to the violence that's been going on um, and, you know, what you would like to see across communities, um, not just from Asian people who are in this, this moment and throughout history, you know, being attacked, but what you, what other communities, including communities of color and white people could be doing to be coagitated. You guys talking just now about um, just hearing Alice's words about what is happening in the Asian American community right now. And it is, I mean, you see that thread across so many different communities of color, especially of always being scapegoated by these, these systems of oppression, these power structures we have right now. And so anytime I hear other communities talking about their own history, you know, we're talking a lot about historical context right now. It's every time I'm a part of those spaces, I feel that like echo of pain in my bones. I'm like, I see that in me. I get it. I get what you're saying. And you know what the violence that has happened with our, our Asian American Pacific Islander elder population across the country um, across the past year, but especially in the last um, few months of mm-hmm. murders and random acts of violence that aren't that random, that are hate crimes all across our coast in America is devastating. And I think one of one of the issues within our Asian American community is that, as Alice is saying, there there is that model minority, that attitude that that a lot of us hold within ourselves as well of, well, we better not, we don't want to speak out. We want to be polite. We want, we don't want to necessarily disrupt the status quo because I think across many different cultures within the Asian American community, that's just not, that's just not what you're taught oftentimes. And, you know, the other thing I want to say is that 
there exists a lot of anti-Black racism within the Asian American community as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's been such a struggle speaking out against these hate crimes is, is making sure that we're not then creating blame on other communities. Like how are we not standing up for ourselves how can we also stand up for all the other communities instead of trying to place blame on another community of color and tear them down and say it's their fault? And so that's something that's honestly been a huge struggle because not everyone is willing to come to the to, to the table and have these conversations. And I think conversations across generations and across communities of colors and figuring out how we can build coalitions together and do this work together is really important, which is why I'm I'm so honored that you guys have invited us to the table to chat with y'all and just be open and honest about all these issues. Hey Rebels, we know this has been a difficult year. We've seen a global pandemic exacerbate systemic inequities, give space to acknowledging racial oppression, and in the case of our AAPI community, specifically East Asian sisters and brothers, amplified hate and violence. At Rosa Rebellion, we honor the nuanced histories of all of our cultures and believe in the power of collective agitation. In order for us to face racial injustice, we must find ways to disrupt all forms of oppression. Join us in the work to stop Asian hate, whether that is donating to an organization like hashtag stop Asian hate or Asian Americans advancing justice or the many we have listed on our website. Or perhaps it's supporting an AAPI owned business or equipping yourself with the stories and histories of anti-Asian sentiment that is a part of our country's legacy or simply checking on your Asian American friends and community, or simply sharing this podcast. Pull up, show up, and co-agitate. For those of you in Austin or surrounding areas in Texas, we invite you to join Ashley Chang, who you just heard from on this episode, who's leading the rally to stop Asian hate on April 17th at 4 p.m. at Houston Tillotson University to stand in solidarity with the AAPI communities across the nation to condemn this wave of violence, vitriol, and racism. Check out the links in the podcast description for additional info and resources. In listening to you talk, I just see such intersections between your experience in America and African-American experience in America. But I'd like to just delve a little bit more into that. What does that mean at a personal level? It looks like the people in this room are seeing that, but it, it can be, I think, the recognition that the source of our pain in this country comes from a common source. And it is a view that there, that people of color and various gradations of color are inherently unequal. Uh, and so we have a common source of our pain. Uh, and I've often said that how, how does, how can that bring us together to understand one another? What kind of coalitions are possible? And how do we, I've often said when we talk about integration, we only seem to see integration as white people always being the stable, the anchor, and then with somebody else. But I think we're in a time where we need to talk about integration among people of color since we've experienced, have a common experience in America. Maybe we could begin to explore that a little bit more about 
what integration between the Black community and the Asian American community could look like. And, and, and there have been many efforts. The whole model minority uh, myth uh, was designed in some ways to pit Asian Americans against Black Americans and to be able to say, well, look at the Asian Americans and what they've done and what's wrong with you Black people. And, and sometimes it's very comfortable to allow that if you're on the benefiting end of that. Uh, so where are we with that? What kinds of attitudes are there about the model minority? In many segments of the Asian American community, there's as much poverty as there is among uh, Black Americans. But how, do, but how do we move past that? Many of the riots that began in L.A. years ago were over an incident between an African-American young lady and a Korean shop owner. And there's resentment that maybe Asians get to come in and own stores and tell us what to do. Uh, and then the Asian community sees uh, Black people as lazy and that they're the cause of their own plight. So can we talk for a few minutes about how we get past that and share our humanity? Yeah, I would love that. I think, you know, Ashley, what, what you acknowledged you know, anti-Black racism in the Asian community is really, really important. It's an important first step. I think um, Mm -hmm. it's powerful to name it um, Mm -hmm. and people can sometimes Mm -hmm. be scared to just say the thing, right? And, And, you know, I think sometimes what we have felt is, you know, Black people have shown up in a lot of ways for everyone, particularly Black women, have shown up to fight on behalf of everyone and, and we, that has not always been reciprocated. Um, but I think in this uh, moment, what G-Mom is talking about is really important because I think there is, it does feel like an inflection point. It does feel like the, that some things are starting to be acknowledged and that we do have like the ability to start to really build coalitions against these systems and not against, you know, each other. <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know, like, what are y'all's thoughts on, yes. on that? I have been educated, our community saying, without the 1965 for the uh, civil rights movement, we were not going to be here. Mm-hmm. And without their fight, their loss, their life, their blood fight, we cannot even get to vote. So this is, has to be recognized. I always feel like... Uh, Right now, we are scapegoat because of the pandemic. And uh, we need to learn mm-hmm. how our Black sister brothers, how did they fight for their rights? We need to learn mm-hmm. this. So this is so important. And so I am mm-hmm. so appreciate you guys to doing this. And we can talk about really for this kind of situation, for the future, people in color, we all suffered. We all suffered mm-hmm. together in different time period, in different uh, of the math. But uh, we all need to be united. Then we can fight for the justice together. We can mm-hmm. fight this, the yeah. white supremacists together. This is uh, so important. So I love that, Alice, you know, specifically this call to action around what it means to acknowledge our collective pain and our nuanced traumas. Mm-hmm. Right, that we've all yes. suffered these indignities, as Megan said, in different ways. But the it, the ways in which institutions and systems have been built in this country from its founding have all been, in some ways, to disrupt our ability 
to have access or disrupt our ability to thrive in an equitable community. And so what does it look like to, as we say, co-labor with one another, right? Come alongside one another. I think part of the politics and part of the power of white supremacy and the power of racism is to create this scarcity model that we're fighting for the same funds, we're fighting for the same headlines, we're fighting for, for in some ways we're comparing pain, right? And that is such a distraction to the actual work. And it's such a destructive component to the work that there's nothing to come out of comparing whose pain is worse, rather than what, what happens when in this moment in time, we've seen such a visceral pain, violence around our Asian brothers and sisters. And what does it look like to show up, to co-labor, to co-agitate, and then in turn, learn from one another about what it looks like to elevate these, this discussion and elevate this work. And I think there's this poet that I've come to really appreciating. Her name is uh, Ejuma Oluo. And she says, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. It's the only way forward. And I just think about this moment, you know, some of us have declared 2020 this like racial reckoning. And that is wonderful, but only if it actually produces, right? a revived and recalibrated way of moving forward. And I think there's been some really incredible things we've seen take place, whether we're talking about in the sports arena and the conversations around Black Lives Matter and then Jeremy Lin and things like that. But I wonder, Ashley, if you can speak a little bit around sort of the millennial generation um, and sort of the access of social media and in your case, you know, podcasts, how you've kind of leveraged those resources and spaces to bring about the coalitions that you speak of. Yeah. And this is this is this is a great segue because it's also when I comment I wanted to comment on on the previous conversation too. Like what does this work actually look like? Like how are we, you know, it's really easy yeah. for us to talk about these really lofty goals we have. And I'm like, well, I, I'm such a how do we like do a tangible person yeah I just I don't do well with like really like philosophical thoughts and concepts I just I need to just give me like a like a plan you know give me a checklist and so I think I think it's having conversations like this but even more so it's having those really quiet conversations oh thank you I really feel like this kind of conversation really help bring our community together I just received a text this morning on the next door let me uh show you it's uh in austin they post a canyon creek area and this uh, this person posted i just read it a part of it say my wife and a neighbor friend was walking on chestnut ridge toward uh, another street this morning a driver from a small car and uh, next to them uh, verbally attacked them and uh, after sweating to them and then left and then backed up the car toward them. So these two ladies, Chinese ladies, so run away to another street, hiding at the, behind the one house and called the husband coming to get them. So those kind of thing happens, not mm-hmm. reported. Nobody knows. People find out this and text it to me. I said, we need to do something. Depend on, we cannot depend on government to do this. We have to do with our own. Oh, Ashley, I heard you speak about something that I think is a point 
where we can begin and it's time. And, and Alice, the work you've been do done, it, we're all re resisting the invisibility and marginalization that we experience. And, and who counts? Who matters? You know, Black lives matter, but who, whose lives really matter in this nation? And I think an excellent point of beginning is, is to talk about voting. That's very concrete right now. And people are being excluded on the basis of color. But if we're to have a true democracy, it means that all the factors, all the people, all the diversity of our nation has to be represented and who our elected officials are. And, you know, I don't want to become too political right now. Of course, I never mind. But <laughs> some of the elected officials that we have now have just are busy at dehumanizing all of us and trying to make America this small place that only white men govern and they've resorted to lying and cheating and all kinds of violence. But there's something very powerful in that vote. And yet it's under attack right now. So maybe could we talk about, actually, you say you like the tangible. Seems to me that's very tangible. All of these states are now, the election is over, are marshalling forces to try to suppress the vote and restrict the number of people who count. As, and, and they want to change the census so some people don't count. So maybe that's a launching point that we could begin to say where we go from here. Yes, you're yes. speaking my language. I am never afraid to get a little political. <laughs> right. so I, I wanted to pause also, you're talking about the importance of being counted, absolutely the voting and the census, but I just wanted to take a moment to brag on the work that was done within the Asian American community specifically in Central Texas, specifically led like people led by people like Alice, who I call um, Alice IE, my auntie, my political auntie. All right. uh, but Asian Americans have the highest uh, rates of census turnout. Response rate. Yes. Response rates. And that's, that's yeah. incredible. And, that yeah. was, and then that was then translated to some of our highest, the highest rates of, of turnout. I mean, in you know, in Travis County, where we're based alone, we had a 34% increase in voter turnout, 29.5% increase of voter turnout Asian Americans across the entire state since the previous presidential election, which is huge. But it also shows us that while Asian Americans are, you know, the fastest growing um, demographic group in Texas, we weren't, we haven't been traditionally very civically engaged. And obviously there's all kinds of barriers that several different communities of color have, a lot of language access barriers. You know, I was talking about education around how, you know, the processes are just made impossible for anyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if English isn't your first language, that just becomes even more impossible as a hurdle. But I'm so proud that our communities are starting to turn out. You know, it was like, I think the Asian American voter turnout was three times more the general population turnout, which was mind blowing to me that we did that work here in Texas. But then there's another phase that we're working on now and that's redistricting. Mm -hmm. And so that that's going to impact us so much in terms of how our communities are represented. And so for context, for anyone there, if redistricting, it's like such a jargon word, but basically every 10 years based on the census, you know, resources and power are distributed across the state based on our electoral maps. and. That's what's happening right now in this next year once we get the, cens the census results back. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to also use our voices to make sure that we're, we're all at the table in some way representing our communities to make sure that the maps are drawn in a way where 
we can actually elect representatives that feel representative of us and our people. Can you crystallize that a little bit? How can people use their voice to to fight for equitable redistricting and fight voter dilution? I'm so glad you asked me. And I love this, like my favorite thing to talk about right now. And it it's it sounds kind of technical, so no one really wants to talk about it. I find because there's I love a lot it. Of it's like my favorite class in law school. So so I'm ready right up my alley. I'm really new to a lot of this work, so I'm I'm great at kind of dumbing down messages to people because I've had to had to catch up and learn a lot of it in the last year. But I mean, right now, you know, um, testimony, public testimony is being taken right now at the the Texas um, legislature. Um, I'm not sure what's going to be happening by the time folks listen to this, but it's constantly in flux. So getting in touch with we have a Texas AAPI redistricting coalition. There's all kinds of organizations, League of Women Voters, Texas Civil Rights Project who are trying to make it really easy for folks to make their voice heard, which means maybe showing up to a public testimony, speaking for three minutes about your very specific communities. Like I went on and talked about the Buddhist temple that my mom and I would have gone to to celebrate Lunar New Year, but we live about 15 minutes away from each other and yet we're in different congressional districts and the line that separates us is basically that Buddhist temple where we both go. And so you're seeing how, you know, if you look at some of the maps of our U.S. congressional districts, state reps, state senate, um, the state board of education, these districts, people, they really draw them out like block by block. And when you layer those maps on top of demographic maps, you can just see how clearly we're being split apart so that our votes are being diluted. And, you know, we can talk to our representatives. The, the decisions are being made by our state representatives and our state senators. It's going to be a really tough battle for uh, to make those maps equitable. But we have the Voting Rights Act. Speaking of the importance of the civil rights movement, we have the Voting Rights Act on our side. So it's really, really likely that the maps are going to be sent to litigation. So the reason why we need to make, quote unquote, make our voices heard is to get information about our communities and exactly where they are in writing or on the public record is because then in the event that there is some kind of litigation around the maps, that there'll be evidence that at least we showed up and we told them that we're here, right? And that we deserve to be counted and kept together in these maps. Do you see that as a point of, or is it too ambitious for me to speak of, that these communities of color can uh, get to the point that we speak for each other, stand up for each other. And so when this vote, we saw huge increases in the Black vote, huge increases in the Asian vote. But in what sense does that benefit us together? And how do we consciously carve this way, coalition building and collaboration and caring for one another uh, feeling one another's pain and therefore standing up for one another in their pain. So how realistic is that? I have a really quick example on this and it's based on redistricting and I would love to hear Alice's thoughts, but something that just happened in on, on the redistricting front is that someone who could only speak Spanish uh, wanted to sign up for public testimony, but they, the Senate committee was refusing them a translator. And so that was something that was devastating, you know, it, because something is so important as as uh, these maps that represent us and, and the resources that will be allocated eventually. We saw someone, you know, someone from the, the Latinx Hispanic Coalition told me that and Alice that and now we're able to gather our folks. We're represented by, you know, dozens of languages 
across Texas as Asian Americans. And so we realized that's a, that's a plight that we feel. You know, if someone is trying to take away our visibility because of the language that we speak, um, that's just not okay. We're not gonna stand with that, whether or not, you know, whether that's a part of the Asian community or not, that's, that's, that's just not okay. And so we've been able to gather um, nearly a dozen folks to be able to speak in Urdu, Hindi, Alice is going to be uh, testifying in Mandarin, just Korean, Vietnamese, to show people that Texas is this, di this diverse richness, this fabric of different languages and cultures. And that's one way where we can stand together. And I think that is an example of something very tangible that we were able to do uh, sort of across communities of color. That, that, that's such a, a demonstration of like the word that Megan and I constantly sort of call people into the work of co-agitation, right? None of this thing, none of these things happen in isolation. They can't because our histories are interconnected and our, our futures are interconnected, right? And so, you know, you taking it upon yourself to call other people into this work um, by literally standing and testimony by speaking their native tongue is such a powerful example of what happens when we can all show up authentically as ourselves and in doing that we we bring about this opportunity to shift systems and how they function i know you know as we continue to have to navigate a pandemic that hasn't just brought community disconnect and death but also violence and as those of us in Texas, we've just survived, I think what the, the Gen Zers are calling Snowvid, um, at least according to my sister and her students. And there's just so much, you know, Megan and I were talking about this earlier and I actually just posted about this on Instagram, just it's exhausting. And it's not just the like, I need to go to sleep for 12 hours exhausting, it's like a mental, physical, mm. emotional yes. exhaustion. Like Alice, I can't even, imagine what it's like to be the reciprocal of all those text messages from folks documenting violence across the community. Right. And so I want to offer some space and hear from you, Allison, and Ashley, like what's giving you hope in this moment? Um, who or what is inspiring you and giving you hope for us to wake up tomorrow and continue this work? Mm, I have uh, inspiration from my own mother. My mom speak up and fighting for social justice all her life. When she just need a little bit of emotion and a little bit of background again, history again. My mom was mentally and physically mistreated when she was in her early 20s back in China. The reason, because she has an older sister went to flee to Taiwan. So mom is stayed there with the communist country. Mom's, my aunt went to Taiwan. So mom is the one who helped her left. So she was not allowed to marry my father, but they did not listen to government order and they fought for their marriage, for their love life. So they married. They both punished. My dad punished over two levels down, downgrade and become a, a teacher. And mom was uh, Stragged from work, from a workforce for 26 years. She cannot get job. I know that time, family of four, my dad is the only one works. Mom has to, to working on this, that, doing all kinds of things, making feel sense or feel not even. I remember very well when 
over a 24, in, in, within 24 hours, mom and net one sweater for a person made $1.50. So those kind of thing, mom did not get her done. She fight. So when I grew up, I faced injustice. When I grew up because of that family background, I suffered injustice when I was only 13. I watched mom fighting for me, fighting for her, for the family. And then when I finished high school at that time, I was 17, I fighting for my own life. So fighting for social justice, equality, is our family affair. I grew up into it. And mom told me before she passed away five years ago, says, if you're my daughter, be strong. Keep fight. Keep doing what you're doing. Be strong. And that's my daughter, and I'm watching you. So I'm thinking 1965, when Dr. Keegan and John Lewis marched for the civil rights or the voting rights, they never thought we are going to have a black president in the United States. But we did, even in 50 years or 60 years later. So I hope nowadays I see so many friends across the racial uh, group, across the generations. And uh, I have the hope we will get there together. And uh, I think important is like uh, Dr. Grandma says, or people in color, Hispanic, Black, Asians, really need to unify. If we are together, our vote is more powerful and no one can push one or another down. No one can make us enemy each other. We need to be smarter. I have a hope. And my hope is your young generation. You're, you guys, I'm getting old. I always tell Ash, Ash, when go for, forward, I'll push you. I'm behind the scenes. Hey, maybe I cannot see that, but uh, we'll be there. Absolutely going to see it. And I, I think that this time that we've been spending and you're telling stories, uh, Virginia said it a few minutes ago, but I think it's really important. We, we have stories that show our humanity, our common humanity. One editor of a book of poetry called Black Voices said, you know, you can't just talk in general about unity and universality and all those things. Mm -hmm. He said, um, but you have to tell the particulars. And so that's how you get to universality and unity. And he's, he gave the example of Yeats. He says, Yeats wrote about Ireland all his life, but he told the truth about being in Ireland and the stories that humanize them. So I think another way that's less structured, but just as important is to create venues where we really hear one another's uh, stories. It's not that we're trying to outmatch each other with stories. I've suffered more than you have. So I think in hearing one another's story, we can hear the humanity in all of us and what pain feels like and what oppression feels like. And so, you know, I'm looking to you young women and Alice, you're much younger than I am. So I'm quoting <laughs> Um, that it might be useful in addition to registering people to vote and getting them out to vote, that we also need to bring people together so that they they 
they understand what it means to stand for one another and to uh, to be united in the cause that we have some common common obstacles, common oppressions. Yes. Ashley, what's giving you hope or inspiration? Oh man, this space right here. Gosh, I needed this today. I really did. I think, I mean, hearing Alice's story and her arc, I, I think also of, it makes me reflect back on my own family's history. And, you know, both of my both of my grandmothers fled communist China to Taiwan, like Alice's sister. And they had both of my parents, both my parents were born in Taipei. And um, and then they they left Taiwan and came to America to start their own lives. And so it's been these, you know, these generations of starting a new, entering a space and not feeling like you're belonging, having to start over again, rebuild, you know, your own culture around you and rebuild your own communities. And I've been born into the space in America and born into a democracy where I feel like I'm not going to uproot myself. I'm gonna stay right here and see what I can do to help build a sense of belonging to the people who are already here, the people who are coming in here into these systems. So they don't feel, I mean, I just think not feeling like you belong is, is or feeling a sense of belonging is the most basic human need, right? I think I think all of us have experienced a moment where you you feel othered in some way, and it's just awful. And you know, I listen to Alice's stories too around just the strength that's carried through her, the women across generations in your family too, and it it makes me think of my mom, of course, and so much of the work that I do in civic engagement, especially around across the Asian American community is really for my mother, because I always grew up thinking my mom just wasn't, she just didn't care. She didn't pay attention to politics. She didn't care, pay attention to, you know, she never voted um, in any election in America. And I just assumed she was apathetic. And it took me a long time to realize that she wasn't apathetic about politics, but the, the politics were apathetic about her. Mm-hmm. And I just, didn't get that. I didn't get how hard it is to show up and have these, how hard it is to show up and have these conversations and to vote. I mean, I became a volunteer deputy registrar after the 2016 election so I could register my mom to vote and to physically hold her hand, drag her into the Randalls. And we were so pumped in 2018. It was that it was a primary election so she could vote for the first time. And we were like dancing in the, you know, in like the, in the, the like a floral aisle section in the line at Randall's. And then we get to the front and everyone, all the wonderful, all the wonderful voter elected officials there were all white. Most of the people in this Randall's are white. And they said that she wasn't in the system and she couldn't vote. Mm. And that was the worst feeling mm. of, it's exactly why she never, participate in the process before of having all of these white faces looking back at her saying that she didn't belong that she she wasn't supposed to be here her name isn't on the list and I physically handed in her paperwork myself but there's a lot of you know her she has a Chinese name and an English name and a lot of times paperwork there's a lot of barriers there who knows what happened but I mean that was such a crushing moment and realizing that she has the privilege of a daughter who has a bachelor of communication, bachelor of communications, you know, and is getting a master's in social work. Like I should understand these systems. And even we couldn't get her to vote the first time around. So that's a huge motivation for me. Thank you so much. Um, 
for sharing your stories, for being vulnerable, for, for sharing your hopes. And we certainly look forward to, you know, continuing to connect with both of you and do this work together. We're all disruptors. We're all disruptors on this call. And so, you know, we'll continue to press forward and do the work. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So wonderful to see your faces. Yes. And I I will just say that my mom finally did vote in the general election Uh, and in 2020. And she texts me all of the time when she's when she's like, I think I have a new person who wants to register to vote. How can we do it? (laughs) And so she's like all over it. We need to get all. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. There's power, power in these stories, folks. There's yes. great power in them. And they are what humanize us and cause us to care about each other and what happens. Thank, Thank you. you, Grandma. So good to meeting you and listen you to you. It's good <laughs> listening to you. Check out these words of wisdom from Gma. It is time for people, all people, but particularly people of color whose identities have been shaped by this notion of whiteness. We're reaching a time when people must define their own humanity for themselves, independent of definitions that have come under the construct of whiteness or white superiority. And we we have to, this is a time for us through our language, through our conversations, through our, our our accumulation of capital, it's time for people of color to be define themselves boldly, audaciously, and to determine their own identity, which may have nothing to do or little to do with whiteness. Uh, and it's a time that we can come together, particularly people of color, and and form coalitions and integration, define integration as the mixture of all kinds of people trying to search for their own identity together, which may include white people on occasion, but may not. It's a way of stating that we all have equal humanity and the right to define ourselves.